This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, please think of joining us. Thank you. This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, please think of joining us. Thank you. This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, please think of joining us. Thank you. Welcome to this month's uh, Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. Okay, we're in uh, 2011. Happy New Year to you all. And it's the first show of the year. Uh, for those of you who perhaps have never listened to our shows, which run every third Friday of the month from 7 to 8 p.m., we're both licensed medical herbalists who train in England and graduated there with a degree in herbal medicine. We run a clinic in Garberville locally where we consult with clients about a wide range of conditions and we recommend herbal medicines and dietary advice. It's uh, become increasingly obvious over the last few years at least that if you really want to get a point across you cannot just mention it once or twice but that a varied uh, topics encompassing the same root subject will result in a coherent view of the matter in question. And association is, after all, an excellent tool for improving the memory. Uh, we get a lot of very positive feedback concerning Dr. Ray Pete, who's joined us on many of our shows now. Uh, and again, he's joining us tonight, and we'll discuss the role of inflammation in the disease process and reiterate some root causes and ways to avoid generating inflammation generally. Okay, so uh, good evening, Dr. Pete, and thank you so much for joining us again. Happy New Year. Oh, yeah. Hi. Hi, Dr. Pete. Sorry to interrupt you, Andrew, but... Um, Go on. We need to say... Uh, for the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say? Basically, <clears throat> there's a disclaimer. Okay. The views and opinions expressed throughout this broadcast <clears throat> are our views and opinions, and they do not reflect the station's thoughts and ideas. Absolutely. Not necessarily. They might agree, they might not. Well, absolutely, they don't. <laughs> Time will be made for other viewpoints. Thank you for joining us. Very good. Okay, so 2011 kicks off with a good old disclaimer. <coughs> okay, so to get back to um, <coughs> get back to Dr. Pete, thanks so much for joining us. Um, as always, uh, for folks who've not listened to our show before, let alone perhaps heard you on the shows, uh, would you perhaps just go over your academic and professional uh, career? Um. I was um, a student and teacher in the humanities for um, about 10 or 15 years before I uh, studied in graduate school of biology, uh, basically um, nerve biology and reproductive biology. And uh, I've taught uh, a few courses in 
oh, uh, biochemistry and immunology uh, and other things. Okay. Um, I know you've uh, extensively written uh, papers, uh, fully referenced papers on many different topics, and um, I know that a lot of uh, a lot of the programs that you've joined us on uh, have really been a broad range of separate subjects, but it's interrelated in in many different ways. And I know the uh, topic for tonight's discussion is the the role of inflammation on the human body, what inflammation does, how is it generated, how can you do something about it. Um, but perhaps people that are listening, would you um, just briefly discuss what you think we all understand when we hear the word inflammation and then, go, then we'll go over the, uh, the broad view uh, of inflammation in a newer thinking. It's actually, the thinking is actually fairly old, but it's been uh, been been brought up by contemporary doctors so what do you think people first understand when they hear inflammation how do we understand um, it about 50 years ago or so when i was in school uh, they were uh, teaching that inflammation is part of the curative healing process so we needed to uh, kill germs and uh, uh, heal okay. but um, in the last 10 or 20 years the change has been uh, seeing it occurring in all of the degenerative diseases Alzheimer's, Parkinson's uh, heart disease uh, arthritis and so on okay. um, so the uh, it's pretty uh, uh, abrupt in, in the 20th century that there was this sudden change to seeing inflammation as at least not all good, maybe all bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you know that uh, from, from uh, I'm reading a little bit about Plato and Aristotelian uh, views of um, medicine, and I know from uh, an inflammatory point of view, they, they definitely had uh, a different metaphor for uh, understanding it. Um, given that um, the, the doctor, Ilya Mechnikov, and later on um uh, Rayma, was it so the gosh i, I like you can you can describe the the, doc, the jamie jamie um that's it yeah uh, with the view of inflammation that both uh Ilya Mechnikov and the the later doctor have um, brought around would you describe the difference between it and how fundamentally it makes such a big difference to the way we should understand what it is that causes it and how to help ourselves? Um, Metchnikoff had worked primarily as an embryologist um, understanding the organization of uh, developing uh, primitive organisms and more complex and uh, when he saw the um, phagocyte process when he put a splinter in an organism uh, and saw cells gathering around it, he interpreted that in the context of what he knew best, which was how the organisms create and maintain their body structure. And uh, it was partly the fact that the Nobel Prize went simultaneously to him with that very biological view of immunity and to Ehrlich, 
uh, who was working with chemical poisons, mm -hmm. uh, and the uh, the idea of of immunity as killing uh, bad organisms uh, took over in throughout the United States and most of the world for most of the 20th century. Um, and uh, that, um, as Americans uh, started studying uh, the white blood cells and the thymus gland and uh, things that we think of as part of the immune system, uh, they were influenced by the, the drug industry, mm -hmm. Ehrlich's uh, uh, looking for, for the bullets to kill the evil organisms. Uh, that passed over to thinking about antibodies and cells as aimed primarily at uh, organisms that are trying to take over. It reminds me of um, how you've described the progression of hepatitis C being, well, we're told that it's this nasty bug, but maybe it's just the body's trying to rearrange something and there's an inflammation and a, a, a process that's going on that is from damage. Uh, yeah, the, um, the retroviruses in general, we've got lots of them, and uh, they seem to be uh, as much part of us as anything, and, and they don't do anything that for sure is, is harmful. Uh, and if you mess up an, an organ like uh, poison the liver, you get a, a bunch of these retroviruses, which they're, why they call them retro is that normally DNA makes RNA and RNA makes protein, but there are enzymes which will turn RNA into DNA. And uh, that was first observed in 1979, but at that time, uh, uh, Trojan and Lamarck were, um, they had been totally weeded out uh, in the late 1940s with the Cold War. Uh, all of Lamarck's followers were uh, fired from all of the teaching positions in the U.S. And so when, in 1979, when uh, the uh, idea that information could go from RNA to DNA was demonstrated, my professors unanimously said it's impossible. That's Lamarckian and not permitted. <laughs> just, just so that people listening understand the... Uh Excuse me. The, the, the DNA is a thing in ourselves that codes for the manufacture of proteins uh, and many, many things that are necessary. Um, the RNA uh, is the uh, messenger, the transcription factor for for producing the DNAs. If if the retroviruses then can actually manufacture DNA, that DNA then can get into our uh, mitochondria and or affect a change in its own right because it's DNA and and some of the people in, inclined in the direction of Lamarck uh, Barbara McClintock and uh, Lise, uh, Lisenko um, they had proposed that uh, you can get genetic change 
eventually Barbara McClintock got the Nobel Prize for it, but about uh, 40 years too late, uh, demonstrating that they believed that uh, information can flow from the environment into the DNA. And some of these people were, were actually saying that there should be enzymes such as are seen in retroviruses, enzymes that can uh, create new DNA uh, in response to environmental experience. Oh, well, that reminds me about that um, test. I think you said it was in Egypt, Dr. Pete? Oh, yeah, the, there was, a, a, in many countries, there was a schistosomiasis uh, epidemic. It, it was uh, pretty chronic, and a very high percentage of, of Egyptians had it. And they were treated for that with some uh, chemicals that injured their liver. And uh, now they say that it was caused by spreading a virus, but uh, other uh, experiments suggest that just the chemical treatment that was aimed at, at killing this parasite uh, could have been enough to uh, cause the livers to express retroviruses, uh, one of which is now called hepatitis C. So it's looking at the... <clears throat> the disease as a as a damaged particle rather than an infectious organism. Yeah, I think this is what Peter Duesberg uh, is suggesting uh, when he says that the retrovirus of HIV, for example, isn't uh, known to, to uh, be a cause of immunodeficiency, hmm. that he suggests that it's the result of chemical poisoning. <clears throat> And I remember, remember reading about five years ago an article from Dr. Stefan Lanker, who was also putting down the uh, HIV hypothesis for, um, or the viral hypothesis for HIV. Okay, so back to um, inflammation. Uh, in, in terms of the inflammatory process then, um, and how we, or I understood it from school and from university, um, studying physiology, how how does how does the uh, the newer view or the older view explained in a newer newer way describe inflammation and how how does it differ? Um, well, if you look at the injury of the fetus, um, it heals without inflammation and it doesn't produce a scar, and uh, basically it's perfect healing. At, at a very early stage, you can split the embryo and each part of the embryo will grow into a complete animal uh, but later in development uh, you can uh, cut or otherwise injure a part of the, the fetus and it simply zips itself shut makes new cells and uh, doesn't leave a scar or inflammation and it's um, after being born that uh, inflammation as we know it uh, occurs. We need and, to all crawl back into our mother's womb. <laughs> yeah, and two, there are two things that happen when we're born. One is our carbon dioxide uh, exposure goes way down and the oxygen availability increases greatly. Mm -hmm. So a shift away from carbon dioxide 
which is anti-inflammatory. And at the same time, uh, when we're no longer protected by the uh, the, the uh, uterus and placenta, uh, which act as a filter, uh, and they let very little polyunsaturated fat in, so that practically uh, all newborns are considered deficient in the hmm. essential fatty acids, so-called. But uh, these uh, begin building up uh, during childhood uh, from practically any diet that we're exposed to. And uh, that combined with the reduced availability of carbon dioxide, uh, you can account for uh, basically all of the features of inflammation and degeneration uh, that are distinct from the um, uh, prenatal uh, healing process. Mm -hmm. We still have some of the features of prenatal healing, but um, and and they can be recovered to some extent. Um, for example, if you pack a wound with sugar, uh, it mm -hmm. uh, practically uh, heals without a scar. Uh, and that's partly because it is, uh, it's not exactly approaching prenatal conditions, but it's, it's uh, giving a, an extremely generous uh, supply of, of sugar, which can be used to make carbon dioxide. Hmm. And this is behind the Greeks using uh, honey and, and deep wounds. And, and the sugar um, makes it unnecessary for the cells to metabolize any of the uh, fatty acids, so that even if, if the organism has been eating them and integrating them into the tissue's presence of sugar, uh, makes it possible to energize and repair cells without drawing down more of these uh, unsaturated fats which produce uh, all of the features that we know of as inflammation uh, mm. as distinct from healing. But just to summarize for um, some of our listeners, in case you haven't heard of uh, polyunsaturated fat, these are liquid vegetable oils that are present in our um, in almost everybody's diet, and you can avoid them to some extent by avoiding uh, any liquid vegetable oil apart from olive oil and eating coconut oil and butter in place. Okay. Um, for those listeners who've uh, just joined, you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD Garberville 91.1 FM. And from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions, either related or unrelated to this month's topic of inflammation. Uh, the number here, if you live in the area, is 923-3911. Or if you live outside the area, the toll-free number is 1-800-KMUD-RAD. Okay, so those two things then, the... Uh, decrease in carbon dioxide and the increase in polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, if, people, if people started to uh, increase their carbon dioxide content, uh, I know we've mentioned in the past uh, bag breathing as a, a very simple way to do that and or uh, living at elevation, uh, if that's possible. Uh, a higher elevation. A higher elevation. Um, and cutting out polyunsaturated fatty acids. What else, what else could be done uh, 
in a person to lessen their chance of the inflammation that may otherwise be uh, generated. Uh, another of the very basic things promoting uh, inflammation rather than healing is the endotoxin that from bacteria um, that can be absorbed into the bloodstream. Okay. And if your liver is well nourished and well energized, it can uh, cut out practically 100% of the endotoxin. But um, if the uh, intestine is, is stressed in any way, which can be uh, nervous stress, uh, increasing the adrenaline that uh, cuts down the blood supply, uh, the reduced blood supply uh, does things like release histamine and serotonin, which make the intestine more permeable, letting uh, more of the endotoxin uh, get into the bloodstream. And the endotoxin uh, does the same uh, thing throughout the body. It increases the permeability, lowers the energy, and uh, increases the... Uh, uh, inefficiency that uh, shows up as inflammation in its various uh, things such as uh, swelling, uh, turning red, uh, local heating because of the high blood supply. Okay. So uh, basically stress is a big killer mm -hmm. along with um, other things that promote inflammation. I know for our listeners, I've just been thinking, well, Dr. Pete's been talking about stress, that there's lots of herbs that can help to de-stress you. I know thyroid is also something that can help your body work better and not run on so much adrenaline and, and stress hormones. And a lot of people who get extremely stressed are often running on adrenaline to keep their metabolism up rather than running on an adequate amount of thyroid. So... um Dr. Pete, do you have anything else to add to how um, we can well, help uh, minimize keeping, stress? Keeping the intestine as clean as possible, uh, moving stuff along, uh, raw carrots or uh, bamboo shoots happen to be uh, antiseptic uh, vegetable material that doesn't feed the bacteria and tends to uh, suppress the bacterial growth so that it uh, doesn't come too far up the intestine and they also bind the endotoxin and uh, other chemicals that that should be eliminated uh, if the, the intestine is sluggish uh, what the liver has excreted into the bile trying to get rid of uh, will be reabsorbed farther down the intestine and come back to poison the liver and if you keep a, a stream of uh, good clean material moving through, uh, you can uh, lower the, uh, the toxins that should be excreted, uh, and that would include uh, unwanted hormones, including estrogen, which the liver should uh, be able to 100% eliminate mm -hmm. as they reach the, the liver, and uh, it will uh, reduce the endotoxin and uh, shift the uh, the serotonin and histamine such that it will also lower the uh, cortisol production and uh, that total 
pattern will increase the good hormones, progesterone and uh, testosterone, for example. And for those who might like a nice recipe, Dr. Feetz um, suggested that if you add apple cider vinegar or lemon or lime juice to raw grated carrots with some salt and coconut oil or olive oil, that it's um, even more antimicrobial, antiviral, uh, antibacterial, as well as um, antifungal with the apple cider vinegar. Uh, Dr. Pete, what do you think about um, using anti-inflammatories as another means to lower inflammation in addition to what we've talked about briefly for foods and avoiding foods? Uh, some of them are um, very helpful. Um, I mentioned that cleaning the intestine will lower the production of cortisol and uh, raise the pregnenolone, testosterone, and progesterone. These are our natural, uh, most powerful anti-inflammatory things to stabilize uh, the fetus uh, is exposed to an extremely high concentration of, of progesterone until it's born. And uh, so if keeping our production of progesterone as high as possible uh, can make a big uh, difference in susceptibility to inflammation and degeneration. Uh, but um, aspirin and related things uh, a lot of fruit uh, chemicals uh, are similar to aspirin uh, and have a, a protective effect. What, what particular fruit chemicals? Um, I'm specifically thinking of uh, naringen and naringen mm. in, in yeah. oranges. Fruits. Okay. Is, is that in grapefruits as well? Have I heard that uh, from? Well, there's another one in grapefruit that happens to poison an enzyme system in the liver right. uh, letting estrogen accumulate tremendously. Right. And this is such a well-known medical fact that in Fortuna <laughs> Maternity Ward they say we no longer serve grapefruit juice to our pregnant mothers because it interferes with the hormones. Right. They didn't specify that it blocked the P450 enzyme that hmm. helps the liver excrete excessively high or all of the excess estrogen. Okay, so naringenin, and then uh, is there anything else that you you think of? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, do you do you know have you uh, have you heard or have they done in the past? I can't can't imagine they haven't. But um, animal experiments modelling after uh, keeping the CO two concentration high, um, keeping all the uh, uh, inflammatory products that would normally be associated. Uh, with an animal's diet or their environment out and measuring um, different things to see how how they performed or how longer they lived or how oh yeah, yeah. Um, the um, about seventy years ago people were noticing that uh, food restriction could increase lifespan thirty or forty percent. Then it has gone through phases in which they they saw that this could happen in even adult animals could could uh, live longer and healthier by uh, reducing the food intake but then they started trying different specific foods and it happens that the foods which are eliminated are the, those which produce inflammation in various ways uh, for example the polyunsaturated fats and uh, the um, amino acids that uh, 
contribute to inflammation such as tryptophan and methionine. Uh, just eliminating uh, one of these will uh, increase longevity about 30 or 40 percent in animal studies. Okay. Wow, that's a lot, 30 to 40 percent. So these um, Indians that live to 120 years of age <laughs> live in the Himalayas. I mean, <clears throat> the Andes, sorry, excuse me. Uh, are, are, what, are they just not eating any polyunsaturated oils? And I mean, Do you know any, uh, anything well, about that? Well, at high altitudes, uh, all of these long-lived cultures uh, in South America and uh, the Caucasus and Nepal, uh, they all lived at fairly high altitudes and were surrounded by uh, glaciers in, in most of the cases so that they're... Uh, they were drinking uh, water that was uh, fairly recently high-altitude snow, which uh, happens to be isotopically different from uh, sea-level water. Uh, it's been refined by a repeated distillation as, as it uh, rains out, going to higher and higher altitudes. It becomes a metabolically stimulating light water, where um, average water contains some of the metabolic uh, flowing heavy water. But at the same time, uh, the uh, atmosphere at high altitudes is uh, very low in oxygen, and so people uh, retain more carbon dioxide in their tissues. That's uh, another uh, resemblance of the prenatal condition. And generally, they um, are sheep farmers. Uh, sheep can live at uh, relatively high altitudes, and so they uh, tend to either eat uh, uh, vegetables, fruits, or um, uh, cheese, lots of cheese and milk-related dishes. Wow, that's very interesting. It's the, almost. Uh, yeah, I know. The the uh, that the, the thing about the uh, rainwater that's pretty interesting. I know from an alchemical perspective, the uh, first prerequisite is to distill water seven times to be used in the experiments because the alchemists always believe that each successive distillation raises the energy of the water. And I read a an article about. Um, uh, they also use storm water, water that was only collected during electrical storms. But I did read an article about. Uh, water, because I, uh, many, many years ago, I never thought any, there was any difference between regular water, tap water, or whatever. It was all water to me, it was all H2O. But it's actually very different, and it's, it's, it's a lot of papers have been written on the subject of water and how, how different energetically they are, and how different they make, you know, what difference they make in the body, and how available um, the water is to the body and to the cell. Uh, in the 1930s, when they first made isotopically uh, heavy water with deuterium mm -hmm. replacing hydrogen. Yeah. They found that it uh, slowed uh, biological processes, the daily rhythm, nerve conduction, and uh, in 1950 they showed in mouse experiments that it tremendously accelerated the aging process. Uh -huh. All of the features of aging, slowing metabolism and, and dying prematurely were produced, but it took about 50 years after that before people started experimenting with the uh, light water from which the heavy water 
had been removed. Right. And they found that, uh, for example, they were experimenting with it in the Russian space vehicles. Uh-huh. Uh, and they found that the condensed sweat had been filtered <laughs> and was a, a very light water resembling glacier water. All right. So what water do you recommend people drink, Dr. Wow. B? <laughs> do you have one? And no. Uh, you have to go to a feet near a glacier. Yeah, but you have to go, okay, so you have to go 15,000 feet then, right? This is, why, this is probably why they bottle glacial water, right? Um, yeah, if it really is that. It but um, it happens that the um, uh, some plants uh, will uh, absorb the, the water at high altitudes and uh, concentrate it even more. Sugar beets for example, uh, intrinsically uh, eliminate uh, deuterons, and so they have light hydrogen incorporated into their tissues. Mm-hmm. And if they grow in Colorado mm-hmm. at a high altitude mm-hmm. where they're getting already refined water, then the beet sugar contains the equivalent wow. of glacier water. Wow. Cool. I wonder, I wonder what kind of altitude beet stops growing at, though, because I... I don't, I don't know that it's that cold. It's not that cold hardy, is it? So, uh, yeah, they're fairly cold hardy, but I don't know the altitude limit. Mm. Okay, okay. Well, you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor uh, from now until the end of the show. Uh, you're invited to call in with any questions, either related or unrelated to this month's topic of inflammation. And our guest speaker is Dr. Raymond Pete. Um, okay, so until until people start calling, the uh, cell communication thing is quite interesting. Quite interesting to me in terms of, I think when people uh, or phys- when we were taught physiology, we were taught about uh, phagocytic activity, engulfing cells and cell drinking activities. And I understand that these these <laughs> these descriptions are not that accurate. Um, the language with which it's been described is pretty. Uh, erroneous, if you like, to use a better word. What do you think about, in, in, the, in the context of what you understand, cell communication, uh, cell-to-cell communication? Um, it, it, um, I think it, it works uh, on many different levels, but I think the important one has been sketched out um, by starting with people like Albert St. Georgie, who demonstrated that uh, cells, um, muscle systems and secretory systems and such are uh, tuned electronically to the the, um, properties of of the molecule that are, um, they they talk about them as, as quantum chemical features, but it's just the way the electrons resonate in the particular molecules, and that's because the the whole cell is tuned to uh, resonate to certain substances. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a recent lecture by, I think his name is Luca Turin, a Google lecture on uh, pharmacology, but it, it is uh, showing the uh, current vitality of that idea of Albert St. Georgie, which uh, another person, uh, Mei Wan Ho, uh, has a website uh, talking about the uh, coherence of an organism, and her website has a picture of a, a worm made through uh, polarizing 
microscope showing that uh, there is coherence on the atomic level uh, all the way through the the uh, little worm. And I think that kind of coherence, electronic or um, chemical and electrical interaction, is at the basis of such things as cell recognition. Uh, there, there are the lock and key uh, processes, enzyme, substrate, and antibody uh, uh, antigen recognition. But uh, the, the uh, important uh, things for communicating between cells, I think, are a whole step beyond the lock and key. Okay, before we go any further with that, I know there's uh, a couple of callers on the line, at least there's one on the line for sure. Um, Carla, you're on the air? Hi. Hi, good evening. I have two questions. One is if you you and Sarah could give a phone number to contact you. And my other question is for Dr. Pete. Um, I've been doing the carrot thing, and I'm really this is very interesting to me. I'm just fascinated with it. But I have an unrelated question, and that is um, I've been getting off of Prozac that I took for many years, and I, I'm having all of what they call discontinuation syndrome, um, which I would call drug withdrawal, but, uh, you know, like agitation and sweating and um, so on. And I was wondering, are there herbs that one can take to, to help alleviate that discomfort while it's going on? Um, yes. Yes, there are herbs that you can take to help alleviate the discomfort of withdrawing from Prozac. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was doing it because partly because I want, I'm, I'm worried about the influence of the serotonin uptake inhibitors on my bone structure. Right. Yeah. I remember you called before and right, um, Dr. Right. Pete so I'm well that. into it and I'm surviving, but I was just Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Pete, do you have any recommendations? Um, yeah, the, um, the good effects of those... Uh, serotonin uptake inhibitors, uh, I think it's really other things, not at all serotonin. I think it's in spite of the serotonin. <laughs> and if you look at the history of serotonin, you see that in the 1950s, it was discovered to be what, what uh, makes the carcinoid syndrome huh? or the carcinoid tumor so bad. Oh. And the, the, um, the tumor itself, instead of turning almost all of our dietary tryptophan into niacin, these tumors turn uh, the bulk of it, uh, more than half of it, into serotonin. And so they, they flood us. They're worse than Prozac. And the features well-defined for this massive overdosing of serotonin are... Uh, a good insight into what's going on with the drug industry. Uh, the, um, the people <coughs> flushed, became depressed, anxious, and aggressive <laughs> under the influence of serotonin. Uh, they developed arthritic pains, uh, uh, a whole range of inflammatory uh, degenerative symptoms. Uh, the, the skin would uh, eventually thicken Heart valves would become fibrotic, and uh, these are things that are, are now being seen associated with the uptake inhibitors, um, osteoporosis, heart disease, breast cancer, <laughs> obesity. 
And here, serotonin is the supposed it's good supposed guy, and it's guy, just yeah. another mediator of inflammatory responses. Well, I don't think it's that good because getting off of it is really awful. <laughs> so it must have been doing something else besides making me feel a little better. Yeah, there, there are uh, good uh, ways to get off. I, I think pregnenolone, thyroid, and uh, uh, coffee are very helpful. Coffee? Uh, yeah, uh, you have to uh, adjust to the coffee, but it goes with thyroid, sugar, progesterone, uh. and so on as part of an anti-inflammatory uh. system. Uh, uh, the When we were talking about the anti-inflammatory uh, substances, I should have mentioned caffeine as one of them. And also, too, with caffeine, if... If you're already running on a lot of adrenaline and you're you're very you get very low blood sugar, if you drink caffeine, that can um, worsen the symptoms. But is if you restock your liver's glycogen stores through eating uh, low uh, sugars that are lower glycemic index, but more importantly, non-starchy sugars, then your body will not respond to the adrenaline like it would if. You were very low blood sugar, so that's a process of adapting. Great. And now, could you give me a contact number for you and Andrew? Yes. Uh, uh, are you within the 707 area yes, code? Yes, I am. Yes. Okay, our I'm num- in Laytonville, so I'm just I'm not that far away. Okay, so it's um, 986-9506 and um, extension 2 to ask questions extension 3 to set up a consultation oh okay and the, and you're in garberville right yes our, okay. our clinic is located in garberville okay i just couldn't find you in the phone book so i thought this month i'm going to get your phone number so <laughs> well, thank we, you so we, much and thank you dr pete i'm reading things on your website I, it's so informative thank you thank you for your call thank you okay i think is there another caller uh well someone had a question okay about Arnica, how it works, and how to use it. Okay. So Arnica is a um, very anti-inflammatory flower, and you really need to have an oil made from Arnica. You'd want to make a macerated oil, and this is how we make it. And then we don't actually sell it to stores um, for retail like we do. Our Does it grow around here? Herbal tinctures. No. No, it grows at high elevations. I mean, it, I imagine European it grows, well, and also in Montana. Yeah. It's Arnica Montana is the Latin name. But it doesn't grow around here. Well, I don't know if you could get it to grow around here because it is such a high elevation plant. Yeah. The Mon- I think the, Mon- the strict sense of the word Montana is mountain. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it did grow in the U.S. Oh, well, no, maybe up in Montana there's lots of mountains up there, so it's, it's definitely not... I thought it did grow in the mountainous United States. Anyways, we can um, check on that and see if uh, I'm right or wrong here on the Montana. But um, you want to make a heat maceration in order to extract the anti-inflammatory compounds, and you don't want to take it internally. I definitely don't recommend you take it internally, but it can really help to alleviate bruises and uh, tendon sprains and tears just by rubbing the oil on the affected area immediately after the injury. And it, wor- it works really, really well. <laughs> I've seen lots of evidence for it myself. It's one of those, uh, how does it do that? How does I'm it stop sure the inflammation? Maybe Dr. Pete understands the physiological effects of, uh, of Arnica. I don't know. No. You don't? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so that, that's that one. There's no more callers. Okay, so. Um, Dr. I wanted to ask you about the um, cells' communication from one cell to another. You were talking how they can 
communicate to each other. And I think there is also a study that you mentioned to me about cells communicating even through, uh, like, a piece of plastic. Um, yeah, that was um, uh, the Gerbiches in the 1920s and 30s were demonstrating that if you used um, quartz that passes certain frequencies of ultraviolet, they demonstrated that uh, cells could stimulate cell division uh, across the thin sheet of quartz. And uh, that is being taken up again in the last 10 years, uh, more people demonstrating uh, coherence. Uh, uh, there are um, variations on that. Uh, one person is arguing and, and demonstrating that, that cells sense and respond to infrared frequencies, but uh, the, most of the work is uh, in the uh, ultraviolet frequency of communication. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ha you mentioned uh, Mei Wan Ho, and then the other person was Albert Sin Singens. Oh, could, could you spell his name, please? St. George, S-Z-E-N-T hyphen G-Y-O-R-G-Y-I. Okay, St. Georgie, okay, good. Okay, so the main thing, the main thing in in, in our bodies is that everything communicates properly. It's when things don't communicate properly that the problems occur. So, in terms of, um, I know you've mentioned before from an energetic point of view, the uh, use of thyroid hormone or improving your diet to improve your own hormone uh, thyroid function. That communication is, is benefited by a higher energy and that's the function of thyroid. Um, yeah, the um, carbon dioxide is one of the uh, sort of a hormone of uh, metabolism. It, it acts like a universal hormone, uh, keeping everything in the optimal condition. For example, it holds histamine and serotonin in a bound position, uh, holds calcium in a bound position. So if you just hyperventilate and lower your CO2 uh, within a minute, your platelets, for example, which uh, carry uh, most of the serotonin in your blood in a harmless state, just a minute of hyperventilation will cause the platelets to release the serotonin uh, and immediately cause capillaries to become permeable, leaking fluid out into your lungs uh, so you can create pulmonary edema with a minute of hyperventilation <laughs> just because you've messed up the carbon dioxide concentration. Okay. Huh. Wow. Okay, pretty dangerous, huh? Okay, um, back to retroviruses a little bit. The... Um because this again is something uh, something that I've not been familiar with at all. Uh, I think the way that we're, we're indoctrinated with um, the, the way things are supposed to be is that all these little things of viruses, they exist and they're all different and they all cause different uh, different problems. From, are, are, you, are you saying that ultimately we, we coexist with a wide range of retroviruses, none of which normally give us any problem until some other insult. Um, yeah, I think uh, Duisburg said we all contain hundreds of them, hmm. and uh, we 
do when when there's an injury to the tissue we do form antibodies and and some people will say that's evidence that they're an alien thing but uh, many years ago uh, someone did an experiment I think it was rabbit cartilage um, they removed a piece of cartilage uh, and re they would replace the untampered with cartilage in in one group of rabbits and it would just um, it didn't uh, produce any reaction mm -hmm. but if they twisted the cartilage just <coughs> enough to damage the structure uh, just as as you would if you mm -hmm. fell and twisted your knee or something okay uh, when they put that one back in the same rabbit it produced the rabbit produced antibodies to it like it was wow. <laughs> an alien thing but uh -huh. What that means about antibodies in the case of our antibodies to retroviruses or whatever is that uh, they're part of a cleanup process. Uh, something is is disturbed. The antibodies are part of uh, preparing the, um, the situation for our and our um, phagocytes to go in and uh, remove the damaged material. Okay. So we're looking at the immune system instead of this killer attack uh, system that just kills and attacks all these different bugs. Perhaps it's just a rearranging and a, a house cleaner. It just goes in there and it just cleans and mops up this little bit of damage here from the milk that spilt on the floor. And <laughs> yeah, uh, just fairly recently someone uh, showed that in a traumatic brain injury, uh, the presence of antibodies to the injured tissue corresponds to the healing. Hmm. The absence of the antibodies uh, lets the uh, tissue deteriorate. So it's, it's pretty well established that it's a cleanup process. And in the thyroid, uh, people think about autoimmune antibodies as causing the problem. But um, just an excess of thyroid-stimulating hormone, because something is blocking the uh, function, the pituitary, increases its uh, drive against the thyroid gland, and that overstimulation uh, causes something like inflammation, and the body is cleaning up the uh, damaged or stressed thyroid cells when it produces antibodies. And so if you keep the thyroid-stimulating hormone low enough, uh, the cleanup will proceed and the antibodies will disappear. Wow. It's very different to current current thinking and what we're all told is is the way it is so that I guess drug companies can sell their drugs. <laughs> it's probably, I don't mean to be uh, cynical, but it's probably some truth in it for sure. Okay, for those of you who are listening, uh, you're listening to Ask Your Ear Doctor on KMUD Garville 91.1 FM and from now until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, the next, ooh, at least seven minutes, uh, people are invited to call in with any questions. We do have Dr. Raymond Pete here. He's a very well-published scientist and researcher and uh, we're very, very pleased to have him on the show. Uh, we've been talking about inflammation and the uh, role of inflammation and all the things that can cause inflammation and how to, how to help yourself. Uh, getting back to, uh, in case we get any, we don't get any calls. Oh, look out! <laughs> we have a caller, I think. Are you on the air? Hello. 
Hi. Hi. You're on the air. Thanks. Um, I'm sorry, I tuned in about midway through. I'm not sure if you've covered this, but I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on eczema and and relationship to leaky gut and digestive stuff. Okay. <laughs> okay. Dr. Pete, what's your view on eczema? Uh, say it again, I didn't hear. Uh, the lady was asking about eczema in relation oh. to leaky gut and or... Oh, oh. well, uh, the uh, celiac disease is one of the causes of, of both skin disease and arthritis. Uh, the celiac disease, um, among other things, will lo allow endotoxin into your circulation. Right. And uh, uh, low thyroid is uh, probably the most common thing associated with uh, just ordinary eczema and uh, uh, that's because when your thyroid is low uh, the circulation to your intestine is poor the serotonin is high and uh, there's a combination of, of uh, endotoxin and uh, uh, serotonin for example will uh, cause the skin to uh, have abnormal growth patterns would psoriasis then be in the same category? I think so. Uh-huh. That's so interesting. And that's why when um, people who have eczema and psoriasis take liver herbs like dandelion and burdock, that they notice an improvement. It's um, generally not enough to cure them, but they do notice an improvement. The curative effect has to be more of a combination of looking at the whole system, like the thyroid and the, um, the diet, and how that influences in overall inflammation. But working on the digestive tract definitely makes a big difference with uh, eczema and psoriasis. Thank you. And can I ask one more question in relationship to the celiac sure. disease? Do you think the tests that test you for um, gluten allergies are good? <laughs> are accurate? Yeah, accurate. <laughs> Dr. Pete, did you hear that question? Well, uh, there are... They can very clearly demonstrate uh, the, uh, the enzymes involved in it, but I, I think gluten is toxic in itself to anyone. It's just that some people are more resistant to it. Um, it has an overlap with the transglutaminase enzyme, which is um, th there's a lot of it in the skin, and in the intestine and it happens to be an enzyme that's activated by estrogen and I, I think that's why women have more of a problem with it but it, it isn't uh, that it's the uh, mm. some particular uh, disease it's that, endo that uh, glut gluten is just absolutely uh, not intended uh, as a food the seeds create uh, the, the protein gluten as a storage form, but also as a byproduct, it uh, discourages animals from eating it because it uh, contains these uh, uh, amino acids that contribute to inflammation. So the seed intends it to cause inflammation in your intestine, and a very tough person can withstand it for a long time, but it's not a good idea for anyone to eat it. And traditionally, 
Um, Europeans ate bread, but it was always soured, and that actual souring process does change the gluten into a less allergenic form, although some people are still um, <coughs> react adversely to it. And soaking it for 12 hours or so <coughs> increases the protein value tremendously while destroying the gluten. So soaking your grains before uh, making the bread and then also um, souring them for 12 hours. You know, bread now, sourdough bread is risen in three or four hours, if that, maybe even one or two. I, I asked a baker and he said 20 minutes. Wow. <laughs> so that it, And that's not enough time for the, the cultures in the, the starter to actually break down the gluten and change it into a much less allergenic form. So traditionally, we never ate bread products like we do today. And in fact, a lot of the European cake recipes don't even call for flour because flour was this highly prized um, <laughs> possession to have in Europe. And most of the cakes and desserts were made with eggs and milk and sugar and not flour. And now statement rules have switched, but I know we're uh, running out of time now. I mean, sorry, <laughs> values have switched and flour is cheap and butter and eggs are expensive. Well, we are coming to the end of the show now. We've only got a couple of minutes left, and I don't want to rush the information that uh, we'd like you to know about uh, Dr. Pete's website. So thank you so much again for joining us, Dr. Pete, and sharing all of your knowledge with us. Okay. Okay, thank you, Dr. so Pete. for all of those people that have listened, uh, Dr. Raymond Pete's got a very good website with a pretty extensive list of uh, referenced material on many different subjects from uh, thyroid to um, progesterone and other related hormones to the fish oil experiments uh, and many many other things so do take a look his website is uh, com, and that's spelled r-a-y-p-e-a-t and guess what he's not selling anything okay very good information well researched um, yeah can't say enough good things about him and sin a lot of very positive situations turn around using his advice so thank you very much and, and we did have one last caller okay. who wanted to caution people that I, I assume from her own experience that soaking the wheat does not take care of her allergy, allergy issues okay yeah so be warned okay. yeah no it definitely um, a lot of people still have um, difficulty eating grain products not just wheat and then gluten containing grains but a lot of different uh, grain products even with soaking because they the, the probably the main reason is because they the effects they have on the intestines maybe we can cover that in the next show but we can be reached Andrew and um, myself Sarah can be reached um, like I gave my number out before 707-986-9506 or toll free 888-926-4372 and that the acronym for that is WBM Herb Western Botanical Medicine WBM Herb H-E-R-B for further consultations or more information thank you and thank you and good night now happy new year to you it's 2011 hopefully it's uh, yeah hopefully it's going to go on for a bit longer well, you could talk about that later too. <laughs> okay, have a good night. Thank you. Thank you for listening.
It is 8 o'clock, and you are tuned in to the greatest radio station on the planet, and that is Redwood Community Radio. Please remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive. Please remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive. Please remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive.